Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics and some other things, which includes germane to today, the history of the English language, which entails a certain coverage of the works of Mr. Shakespeare. As you might imagine, a person such as myself reads Shakespeare with an eye toward cool things about how the language was different then than it is now, and not just in terms of the names for things. So if in Richard II, which I just had the honor of getting to see for free when the Royal Shakespeare Company brought their production here some months ago, Lord Willoughby says at one point, and daily new exactions are devised as blanks, benevolences, and I what not what. What's what? Why, that's an old word for to know. And the infinitive form was wit. That wit verb for know is sprinkled all over English and we don't think about it. Think about the expression to wit. That certainly doesn't refer to being funny. It's to know. And then keeping your wits about you is not about fostering a stable of comedians. Mother wit is not your mom's jokes. So what is what we know as wit when it doesn't mean humor? Wit, deep in our consciousnesses when no one is looking, means not just champagne humor a la Frasier or Broad City, but knowing. Go figure. Anyway, today I'm honored to be guest hosting Lexicon Valley for the summer, and the person I'm honored to talk to today doesn't need to be told any of this stuff about earlier English or Shakespeare or really, from what I've seen, anything about the English language at all. Our guest is Jack Lynch, who works as a professor of English at Rutgers Newark and whose current book is You Could Look It Up which is a history of the reference book of all things. That one is a feast I highly recommend, but we're not doing that one here because it isn't technically about this thing called language. He's also well known for the lexicographer's dilemma, which is about the debate over the centuries about which English is proper. Now, you may have expected that I would want to cover that issue in this episode, but, you know, although Jack's book on that is very, very good, and I recommend it, One gets weary of that topic of prescriptivism sometimes, at least I, at the time of this podcast, am. I hope to talk to Jack about it sometime in the future when my palate has been cleansed somewhat on that score. But these days, I found myself most interested in talking to Jack when I met him at a party a few weeks ago. Yes, that's part of how I choose my guests about a book of his from a bit back called Becoming Shakespeare. Here's the rub. 
or there's the rub that traces to Hamlet. Don't we know? I have ruffled some feathers here and there in the past with my argument that get ready, folks. After four centuries, English has changed so much with the Watts and all that it's time to have versions of Shakespeare plays translated into the English we speak now. Now, not translated into slang, not yo, what up, Juliet, but maybe better termed as adjusted. My focus is on Shakespeare's language as we hear it in live performance. If you read it on the page, sure, you can reflect, you can look things up, you can use those heaps of footnotes, or maybe even use the cribbed versions like the No Fear Shakespeare that's now so familiar. But hearing the language live, when you can't stop to think, well, that's different. At least it has been for me. But today our interest is in our guest, upon which I shall pose to you, Jack, English professor and Shakespeare expert. Have you ever found it hard to understand Shakespeare in performance? I have often found it hard to understand Shakespeare in performance, and I've devoted a career to understanding this stuff, sure. (laughs) Um, There are passages that are difficult when you just listen to them live. There are some that are difficult to the point of being incomprehensible, even on the page when it's loaded with footnotes. Yeah. Does that bother you at all, or is it just the way it has to be? Oh, bother. Uh, It fascinates me more than bothers me, but um, yeah, Shakespeare certainly was a popular entertainer in his day, Mm -hmm. and most of the passages in most of his plays would have been understood by many people. Now, that's not to say he spoke slang, he spoke low language. He was a poet. People did not say things like the dawn in russet mantle clad to each other. (laughs) I hope not. So it was poetic language, but it was understandable by real people. We've got a few things going on now that make it difficult. One, 400 years have passed, and in 400 years, a lot of the language has changed. Another problem we have to deal with in understanding Shakespeare is the texts we have of his plays are a mess. We often don't know what he actually wrote, because what we've got doesn't make sense to anybody. (laughs) Right. And so we have an unusual situation where something that once was popular, as in of the people, and which today we like to say should be popular or even is popular, is often oddly difficult to access for something that we're supposed to be holding so close to our bosom. Now, I have been told by many people that I am out of my mind or living on a different planet, that it isn't as hard as I'm saying. And certainly there are many passages that ring out clear as a bell. And I think a classic example, and I bring this up because I had a party once about 20 years ago, and I mentioned my idea about translation, and somebody actually got angry and grabbed a Shakespeare volume from my shelf and started bellowing in my face the St. <laughs> Crispin speech from Henry V. And yes, it's it's quite stirring to this day. I associate that speech with the smell of Jack Daniels and cracker crumbs. But there really is something to it. Let's hear Kenneth Branagh doing it in the Henry V film, where we actually get a dose of the idea that the only thing standing between us and understanding Shakespeare is hearing it delivered by someone British and well-trained. So let's hear the St. Crispin speech, or at least part of it. Old men forget. Dead all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar in their mouths as household words, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, 
Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world. But we in it shall be remembered. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here. And hold their manhoods chief, whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day! <laughs> yep, cheese, crackers, liquor, and the summer of 1998. So <laughs> that is a beautiful speech. I didn't have any trouble understanding what he was saying. And so, Jack, what about this idea that I have often heard that really Shakespeare just works if somebody is British and that they have something called good training? Is, is there anything to that in your experience? There may be something to that in, in that the kind of training many British actors get is more of a classical English literature canon, and a lot of American actors are accustomed to being trained in a more... Oh, more street kind of discourse, mm -hmm. method actors, and so on. But I think that's probably a small part of the effect we get. And there are plenty of American actors who can do uh, th this sort of serious speech without mumbling and sounding like Keanu Reeves. Um, <laughs> but I think they're just associations in our head. We have been taught this is what Shakespeare sounds like. He mm -hmm. sounds like an English accent. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true enough today, maybe, but what Shakespeare sounded like 400 years ago wasn't a whole lot like that. At all. Um, I think we've just got associations. It's now what we expect. And if we hear any other sort of accent there, we're, we're dealing with unfamiliar music, and it feels strange and off-putting. The kind of passages that have often confused me are the ones where it certainly sounds like the English that we speak. It's not that you think you're listening to Aramaic, but the problem is that you feel like you're listening to a radio station that isn't quite tuned in because after 400 years, words often no longer mean what they meant then. And often the difference is rather subtle, but it's enough to make someone sound less articulate than you would expect them to be. And so, for example, there's Edmund's soliloquy in King Lear, where it sounds very much like he's speaking English. And yet it threw me the first time I heard it because I was trying to get the exact meaning of the words. I was listening to him the way I would listen to somebody in a mammoth play. And he wasn't speaking my language in certain subtle but decisive ways. So let's hear a person who is not American doing Edmund's famous soliloquy in Lear about his nobility or lack thereof. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? For that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother. Why, bastard? Wherefore, base? When my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous, 
and my shape as true as honest madam's issue, why brand they us with base? With baseness? Bastardy. Base. See, that's interesting. It's English, but when he says, why should I allow the curiosity of nations? Well, curiosity. Well, what what are they curious about? Is the idea that the nations are somehow intellectually hungry? Curious had a different meaning then, or when he says he's generous, and the actor kind of rushes by generous a little bit, saying it beautifully, but, well, I'm generous. Well, wait a minute. If you're defending yourself, isn't saying that you have magnanimity a rather odd thing to catalog? It isn't about your generosity. He's supposed to be talking about his worthiness, his nobility, and that's what generous actually meant, noble. And that's not a matter of poetry, and it's not a matter of it being complex. Some people say you're not rising to the complexity. It's just that it's changed, and so he can't say something that means something to us in that sense. Or here's another little bit of it, close to the end. Our father's love is to the bastard Edmund, as to the legitimate, fine word, legitimate. Well then. My legitimate. If this letter speed and my invention thrive, Edmund the base shall top the legitimate. I grow. I prosper. Now, gods, stand up for bastards. Okay, so... Stand up for bastards. And my invention thrive. Invention? What? I didn't. He wasn't holding a light bulb. I didn't. I didn't see a gadget. You have to know from the footnotes that invention meant plan. And once you know that, you can imagine how that word has changed meaning. But if you hear it live, that just has to go by like a bit of Slovak or something because invention doesn't mean that to us spontaneously. Jack, am I crazy in focusing on these things? Should I just relax? Is there something I'm missing? <laughs> well, you obviously have identified some real problems. Uh, some of the, as simple a matter as the word let, L-E-T, <laughs> which could in the early 17th century mean prohibit or prevent, which is as far yeah. from the modern meaning as you get. It can be baffling. What I've noticed is many actors who are using something like a pure Shakespearean text will zip through those lines, will not <laughs> emphasize them. Because if you emphasize the word let, and it's supposed to mean prevent, mm-hmm. your audience is going to have no idea what's going on. Slovak, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, it means that the audience is just given passages that are not not meant to be understood. Right. And that is something that has always bothered me because I sit there mm-hmm. wanting to understand. Whereas many people tell me you're supposed to let it wash over you. It's poetry. It doesn't matter that you can't (laughs) understand all of it. At which point I think, well, maybe I'm just being obsessive. Maybe there's a bit of me that lacks poetry or something like that. And But you, as a scholar of these matters, I imagine might be hearing these things differently. Or maybe you don't mind missing some when you hear it live. Or maybe you're just beyond the point where that's ever been an issue. Oh, well, it's an issue sometimes, but it's not that I don't mind. It's that because I work on these matters, anytime I hear something that doesn't make sense to me, that's something that that I want to investigate. But I don't get to do that if I'm sitting in a theater listening to a line, but I'll make a mental note, get back to this. Right. Um, 
I, I find these things fascinating, but that's because I'm a thoroughgoing language nerd. Um, <laughs> most people in the audience are not going to rush home to their historical dictionaries and their 17th century grammars to figure out what these things mean. <laughs> now, this leaves the big question of what to do about it. Yeah, what do we do about this? Yeah, um, people have proposed translating Shakespeare mm-hmm. into contemporary English. Mm-hmm. And there are any number of experiments in this this area. They range all over the place in terms of quality. I'll let you know that I'm of two minds about them, which is to say, on the one hand, I say, yes, that's a worthy project. Someone should do it. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, whenever I actually come across one, I think, that's awful. How could they do such a thing? <laughs> is that your gut feeling? That's my gut feeling. And I, I once upon a time realized when I was reading translations from other languages, mm-hmm. I have studied some Latin and some Greek. And when I read, I'm no good in them, but I've, I've studied them. Mm-hmm. When I'm reading an English translation of a Latin or Greek passage, and there's a bit in the translation that's that doesn't seem like the original to me, I get fussy. And I go Mm -hmm. back to the Latin or Greek and say, oh, no, I can't believe they left out this bit. It's essential. (laughs) Yes, of course, it's unidiomatic in modern English, but you have to say it this way. Yep. But then, if I'm reading a translation of a Russian novel, Mm -hmm. I've never studied Russian. (laughs) And if I come across some passage that sounds unidiomatic in English, I think, what the hell are you doing, translator? That might make sense in the Russian, but it doesn't make any sense to me. So I realized I'm making impossible demands on translators, which is preserve everything that makes sense to me, right? but not the rest of the world. Right. And that's a tough issue, because if Shakespeare is going to be messed with at all, then yes, to an extent, it's going to be desecration. And it's it's funny that you mention Russian, which seems to come up in a lot of my shows for some reason. I remember reading Anna Karenina and thinking it was really great, but being nagged, probably in the same spirit that I'm nagged, not understanding all of Shakespeare live, by the fact that these couldn't have been the ways many of these things were put in the original. And that's why I started teaching myself to read Russian. And once I got to the point that I could, I realized that whenever we see Chekhov in English, we're getting a a refraction of what it originally was. There are jokes stuck in that don't work that way in the Russian. There are little things in the Russian that are just left out. And that's the way it has to be, unless we're going to expect everybody to learn Russian, which would be rather cruel. These are tough issues. But this is something I learned from first the Lawrence Levine book called Highbrow, Lowbrow. That information has been refreshed by Jack's book, which is that seeing Shakespeare was one, very popular in a distant day, but two, very different from the experience of seeing Shakespeare that we have now. Jack, what would it have been like to see, say, King Lear in 1750? Would have been very different from what we expect in a production of King Lear, I can tell you that much. Um, 1750 is right around the time that Shakespeare was becoming scripture. Mm-hmm. You don't touch it, at least on the page. And people began using religious language for Shakespeare's words. But if you go a few decades before that, people had no trouble making an absolute hash of Shakespeare's texts. And King Lear is the most notorious. Um, many people aren't aware that if you saw King Lear anywhere in the English-speaking world, 
between 1681 and 1836, they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> there was no fool in the play. Uh, Edgar fights off the bad guys and rescues <laughs> Cordelia at the end and goes on to, to rule the country. These uh, things we they, vaguely they, wish would happen, yeah. Yes, and people could read something like Shakespeare's original text, but there was nowhere you could see it. And that was typical. Almost all of Shakespeare's plays got pretty thorough rewrites. In the 1660s, there was one theater company that would do Romeo and Juliet alternating each performance with a comic or a tragic ending. <laughs> so earlier ages had this notion that Shakespeare could just be completely rewritten and they were happy with it. We now have this idea that cutting is acceptable because plays are long. We can trim them down to size. No one objects to that. But inserting a word, that's considered almost blasphemous. Mm-hmm. And, well, it, it, I find it more interesting than objectionable. I, I'm fascinated with the fact we've ended up at this point. In 1929... There was a movie version of The Taming of the Shrew that has on the screen in the credits by William Shakespeare with additional dialogue by Sam Taylor. <laughs> and that made Sam Taylor the butt of jokes for decades. How can you presume to touch Shakespeare's dialogue? Earlier ages had no problem with that. What's the difference is a question I've often had about that. And so why is it that back then a perfectly sophisticated person, and we can't just decide that people somehow back then were boobs or misinformed, perfectly sophisticated people had no problem with seeing this sort of, you know, Shakespeare as you might like it, as opposed to today where we think of him as a deity and we, you know, cuts are okay, but you don't change the actual words. What's the difference? Because even, say, Orson Welles, when he does um, his Chimes at Midnight film, which I should mention, I think is finally coming out in a respectable video version in two months. He takes the Henry plays and others and just hashes them up. It's complete ham and eggs. He's, you know, changes characters who say things. Order is completely different. And Wells fans think of this as evidence of genius. And Wells was coming from a tradition where this sort of thing was not unheard of in stage productions. That was his approach to Shakespeare. Somehow now that's not allowed. What, what happened to us? What happened to us is a long and complicated process. I think a big part of it was that most of us now encounter Shakespeare not in popular productions, but in school. Um, we, the reason that movies of Shakespeare and even stage productions get decent numbers has a lot to do with the number of schools making class trips to see these things. <laughs> We've now decided it's a classic. Mm -hmm. And a classic is a strange term. Classic originally meant old. <laughs> and the, part of the idea is, well, if it's lasted this long, it must be worthwhile. But the whole idea of a modern classic, so not ancient, it's not Latin or Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's a modern work, but a classic, is a weird category to have at all. And sometime over the course of the 18th century, Shakespeare became this strange sort of modern classic. And the attitudes that get applied to it are almost exactly the same attitudes that get applied to the Bible. Yeah. Now, it's 
perhaps no coincidence that the most familiar English Bible translation was done during Shakespeare's lifetime. It came out in 1611, right around the very end of Shakespeare's career. There are people who speculate on no very good grounds that Shakespeare himself may have been one of the team that translated it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, the thing you brought up, the idea of translating Shakespeare into a more accessible contemporary English, has been done fairly often with the Bible. Mm-hmm. And there are many people who re- read these passages and say they're they're just terrible. That's ruined the language. Mm-hmm. We should have our yea verilies and our thou shalt nots in the right. Bible. But of course, when those things were written, they weren't old fashioned. They were right. the way people spoke in sixteen eleven. Right. It's it's interesting that um we more or less accept that the Bible need not sound exactly the way the King James Version did, and they certainly didn't feel that way in terms of versions that were previous then, we think that we want the ideas of the Bible to get through to ordinary people or to any kind of person without them having to step away and make major effort because basically all people are busy. We want it to be something that's really inside of us. And yet with Shakespeare, there's an idea that because if you change it, it isn't precisely what he wrote. You have to leave it the way it is and step around the reality of the incomprehension and the miscomprehensions, even though we want Shakespeare to be as dear to modern English speakers and not just theater people and literary scholars as, say, Chekhov is to Russians. And yet there's this resistance because we, we, we're trained to think of Shakespearean language as certainly – Biblical. And it's interesting because the Oregon Shakespeare Festival now is doing translations where they take considerable liberties. And my colleague in the English Department of Columbia, James Shapiro, wrote a rather scathing editorial in the New York Times against that approach. But I think there are other approaches as well. And so here's Macbeth talking about killing Duncan. And this is a speech one hears. I think this is Act 1, Scene 7. Here's a clip. And once again, sounds like English. But really, if you're sitting there, and I guess maybe being a little obsessive, but I imagine also a nine-year-old expecting to understand, you end up not quite hearing this person. You know, little bits of Slovak. Here it is. Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity, like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye. The tears shall drown the wind. Okay. Now, what is taking off? You know, we know what taking off is. We associate it with rockets or a vacation, but his taking off... Well, it meant knocking off. Or even the first thing, he's born his faculties so meek. What? Faculties? What? It meant authority. Or he's been so clear in his office. It's English, but what does that mean? And that's three in a row. It meant pure. There is a guy named Conrad Spoke, and he is working on what I would call adjustments of Shakespeare. And he works very hard at it. And he's done a Macbeth 
which really isn't disruptive at all. You've got the same archaic syntax. You've got the poetry. He only changes things where it's a word that we simply can't understand now. And it's not a matter of poetry. It's just change. And so, for example, with the first part of that, Spoke has, besides, this Duncan hath borne authority so meek, hath been so pure in his great office that his virtues will plead like angels trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his knocking off. Now, that I understand. It's just an adjustment of three words, and it means that somebody can watch someone saying this on stage without having studied and actually get it. And yet, in my experience, to propose this to many people is as if you had suggested that every third person in the world have their tongue quietly ripped out. Jack, how would you feel about, say, Conrad Spoke's approach? I'd say it's all going to come down to the specifics. God, the devil, or both are in the details. And the the example you gave there, I don't think I'd have any trouble with it. Really? So you... I might have I might have a certain amount of intellectual trouble with it because, <laughs> as I, I hinted, I want to be a purist. Of course, but I also know. There's no such thing. The texts we're dealing with are, we can't be purists about them. We're always reading texts that are mediated through many people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I'd like to be a purist. I know I can't. Those changes seemed to me pretty inoffensive. There are other changes where you have to make a, a difficult judgment call. Do you decide that thou and hast and things like that? That's hard, yeah. Should they be turned into you and have? Mm-hmm. Because any time you make a change like that, some information is lost. Now, the fact that virtually no one in a typical audience is receptive to that information (laughs) means that maybe not a whole lot is lost in the the actual transaction that goes on in a theater, but something is lost. Thou was the informal form of of the second person pronoun, and it was spoken to social inferiors. You is the the formal or the plural form, and it was spoken to people higher up in social class, so that you can read scenes in Shakespeare where there's a shift from a thou to a you, and that might indicate a moment of tenderness on the one hand Mm -hmm. or insolence on the other. And if you turn everything to you, because that's what we say, that information is lost. Yeah. And it's interesting to me, that's something that maybe we could realistically teach people to attend to. You could have a list of that and maybe nine or ten other things. Wherefore means why. Wit and science both mean knowledge. Those are the sorts of things that I imagine one could impart. There was an essay written by a certain Mark Liddell back in 1898 in what was then the Atlantic Monthly, where he actually suggested that it be part of the American curriculum to teach people Elizabethan English just so that they could understand Shakespeare without being alienated or bored. I don't imagine that we could actually incorporate that into a curriculum, but with our fights over just what should be in the common core, if anything. But I imagine we could expect people to understand certain basic differences between Shakespeare's language and ours. But once you're getting down to things like what faculties and clear and taking off meant, these things are so specific that I have this fetish for these substitutions. If you, as an English professor, took your students on a field trip or sent them on one to a Shakespeare performance, sent them from Newark up to New York to see a Shakespeare performance, how would you feel 
if it were one which, and I'm getting the feeling that in 20 years, this is actually going to start being a reality. One which Macbeth did say, hath borne authority so meek, hath been so pure in his great office. Would you flinch or is it something, is it a project that you would find yourself supporting? Well, for me, that's just grist for my mill. It's things I get to talk about, which is what I'm always looking for. Um, But in a case like that, I think I'd probably be in favor of it, but I wouldn't want too many people to know that I favor it. Uh, There's still a sense that any sort of changing of the text is is altering Holy Scripture, and we have to be careful. Um, When I teach Shakespeare's text, I do like to bring up the the distinction between something we read and something we listen to. Mm -hmm. When it's something we read, there can be notes, and notes can be more or less intrusive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can have a long footnote at the bottom of the page talking about exactly what the word science meant in 1604 or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you can just have a little word in the margin that says knowledge. Right. And they make for different kinds of reading experience. I'm always interested in getting my students to be aware of the linguistic difference between our day and theirs. I actually love the fact that the word science has gone through all these meanings. Mm -hmm. Science was once any kind of knowledge, and over time it became philosophy, then natural philosophy, and over time it got narrowed down to our sense of biology and chemistry and so on. But for earlier periods, music and morality could be sciences. Yeah, knowledges, yeah. But when you're actually sitting in a theater, you don't get to do that. And I, I'd like to think that we don't encourage people, just let the words wash over you and don't pay attention to them, because I don't think that's what we should do with poetry in any case. Um, it should all be understood to some degree. Well, this is, this is the thing. This, uh, here's another one of these, these rubs. This makes people mad. I mean, there are people who are listening to this angry. I will almost certainly get some missives saying that people are uncomfortable that I am in an English department and teaching students that I lack poetry, et cetera. And it's not all about me. Anybody who who suggests things like this gets fruit thrown at them. Why does this issue anger people? Why was that friend of mine shouting in my face? And he wasn't a heavy drinker. He was really deeply (laughs) offended by my saying that this language has gotten difficult to understand. Why the the fury? I wish I had an answer to that, but one of the most revelatory moments in my teaching, I was teaching a bunch of graduate students, people working on master's degrees, Mm -hmm. and was talking about the treatment of Shakespeare's text. And I showed them a passage from King Lear. Mm-hmm. as it was printed in the three earliest printings of King Lear. Right. And they're very different. Yeah, that's a problem with Lear. Some of them are really substantial differences that make for very different interpretations of the play. And I said, congratulations, you've now been named editor of King Lear. <laughs> Which version do you pick? Do you pick and choose? And why, you- yeah. Yes. Do you try to pick the one that's closest to what Shakespeare wrote in his study or the one that's closest to what might have been put on stage in 1604 or what have you? Mm -hmm. Um, And I presented this as an intellectual exercise, and the class actually got angry at me. Hmm. How come? And they were saying, are you saying that I've never actually read Shakespeare before? (laughs) Oh, no, you have read 
a version of Shakespeare. They might not be the same versions of Shakespeare, and probably not the same version of Shakespeare anyone could possibly have seen or read in the 17th century. But the the reaction of anger really did fascinate me. I wasn't expecting that. Jack, I think that what it is is that we seek something to worship. Maybe in this increasingly secular society, if a, I'm, I'm just flying blind here, if a person has not been raised with, for example, the good book, maybe there's a fundamental need people have to revere a text in that way. And Shakespeare perhaps fills in the gap. Even grad students then had that, that heated attitude that we're both familiar with because it, it seemed like the whole notion of the bard was being desecrated. That's interesting. What did you tell them? I told them that this has a long history in our culture that you have been told you are reading Shakespeare's pure text, but in fact, dozens of people have stuck their hands in at various points in the process. Yeah. Um, when Branagh released his film of Hamlet, uh-huh. a lot of the publicity was that it was the uncut text. I remember, yeah. They made a great deal of that, that they haven't done anything to it, that it is all pure Shakespeare and nothing's been left out. In fact, they presented a version of Hamlet that no one in the 17th century could possibly have seen or read. And I'm not talking about translating it to 19th century settings. I'm not talking about the visual aspect. Mm -hmm. What they did was took two pretty different printed works and shuffled them together so all of the good bits were in one place. <laughs> yeah. But we have no reason to think Shakespeare ever did that. <laughs> it's interesting. That film is around the time that I started thinking, hmm, you know, as wonderful as this is, and with all the coffee I drank before it, I thought <laughs> I really wish that some of these words were clearer in their meaning. And I read it beforehand. I made sure to be prepared. But I thought everybody shouldn't have to do this. The first time I thought of this, actually, was there was a graduate school production at Stanford of The Tempest. And they were doing everything right. I wouldn't say that these were the most trained people in the world, but they were doing everything right. And I hadn't read The Tempest. And I came out of this having no idea what had gone on. And I was with, actually, engineers. And they were talking about how wonderful it was. And I thought, I didn't think it was wonderful because I don't know what those people were saying. And everybody told me I was crazy. And I must admit, I thought to myself, they're kidding themselves. They're, they, they couldn't have gotten more of this than me because we're all speaking the same language. So then I went and I saw another production of The Tempest. And this time it was ACT in San Francisco. These were well-trained people. I hadn't read it yet. I had no idea what was going on. And I thought, I'm a fairly well-educated person. And I don't think I'm having little strokes, at least not yet. <laughs> it's not that everybody else is hearing something I'm not. It's that I'm wishing for a real understanding that everyone else seems to have gotten used to not having. And that's when I started thinking, Hmm, there's a language issue here. And you're saying that as an English professor, you are not now going to, after this interview, seek to have me fired from my job. You, you actually get what I mean? I get what you mean. And as I said, I'm deeply conflicted. But And as much as I may approve of this in principle, when I saw something in practice, I'm sure my inner pedant would leap up and say, no, no, you can't change that part, because that part is one of my favorite parts. Oh, uh, yeah. But 
I do think there's something to that, um, to, to the idea of translating. Now, we do have the question of what do you do with things that don't make sense to anybody? <laughs> there's a passage in Hamlet where he says, the dram of eel, E-A-L-E, the dram of eel doth all the noble substance of a doubt to his own scandal. <laughs> and not only does that make no sense to you when you hear it on the stage, that makes no sense to scholars sitting with no. early texts on their desk in front of them in the Oxford English <laughs> Dictionary and various thesauruses and so on. Nobody no one knows, knows what, what that a, means. What a dram of eel is. A dram Ayala. is a small amount of liquid, right. an eighth of a fluid ounce, but no one's ever come across the word E-A-L-E right. it's anywhere not, else. It's not the fish, it's, it's something else. Yeah. Right. So some people think, was this a misprint for a dram of ale? Right. Or is this a dream of ease? Because the long S, the one that looks kind oh, of yeah. effy, right. possible that someone misread that as Eve. an L. Right, yeah. But we simply don't know. And there's can't famous, know. There's the famous line in Macbeth, aroint thee, Oh, yeah, the witch. aroint. And the notes will tell you it means go away, be gone, or something like that. It sounds like it, right. But how do they know that? Well, you're probably saying go away at this point. <laughs> so this word we don't know from anywhere else in the English language must mean go away. Right. Uh, aroint. We're probably just making that stuff up based on context. Yeah, some of those things, and I once was talking to a Shakespearean director who said, with things like that, often we just hack it out, and that seems relatively reasonable. But the things that are difficult to comprehend could be seen as being on a continuum with things like that. I actually hope that in the future you have an alternative, and so you can see Macbeth adjusted to modern English. I think we probably shouldn't say translation. Adjusted to modern English, and then sometimes you can see a Macbeth in the original, and that's considered special, and everybody drinks a lot of coffee and talks about how wonderful it was, or they read beforehand. The idea should be don't go see it in the original unless you've engaged it slowly on the page. And that should just be known. That would be a great Shakespearean viewing culture for me. What about you? Yeah, the not notion of choice is, to my mind, uh, the best. I, I tend to be a let, let a thousand flowers bloom kind of guy. Um, for instance, sometimes modernizing the setting of a Shakespeare play, putting it in fascist <laughs> Europe in the 1930s Romeo or something and Juliet like that. and jail, right. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes I think that worked brilliantly, and sometimes I think, oh, God, what an absolute disaster. They didn't understand that at all. <laughs> but I think that a kind of pluralism in approaches to interpretations of Shakespeare is probably the healthiest thing we can do. And yeah. even if we find them awful, <laughs> Even if any individual says, oh, good Lord, they made mincemeat of that speech. or whoever. There is actually one of these translations for students of Shakespeare into contemporary English that translates, uh, wherefore out art thou Romeo as, where are you, Romeo? <laughs> Which is done by someone who doesn't understand even the, the absolute rudiments of right. wherefore. <laughs> the question that goes with therefore, it's why. Where are you uh, at, Romeo? Oh, yes. Uh, so there will be lousy examples. I'm going to go on record saying pluralism is healthy, <laughs> even if individual examples are awful. And Shakespeare 
is a big enough industry that we can afford multiple Hamlets and Macbeths. Yeah, and I think the setting changes are are necessary, frankly. I mean, you know, the costumes of the period can be rather dull. To the eye, I recall a two gentlemen on motorcycles. I would like to take my daughters to a King Lear on ice, if somebody <laughs> would present that, just like they'll be frozen on ice. But in any case, um, we've come to the end of our time. Jack, I thank you for basically playing ping pong with me on this issue, because I think it's really important. My interest is in the bard reaching everybody more than he does now and in a more genuine way. And we'll see what happens. Thank you for not biting my head off. Jack, oh, I'll do that some other time. <laughs> please do. We'll have to meet at another one of those parties. Jack's latest book is You Could Look It Up. Meanwhile, tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show was edited by Efim Shapiro. I'm John McWhorter, major fan of the Bard, not detractor, I should reinforce. Thank you so much for listening today and see you back here in two weeks. 